Ron DeSantis is out of the race for the GOP presidential primary, leaving Nikki Haley as the only alternative to Donald Trump. It's Monday, January 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, DeSantis says he's now endorsing Trump for the presidency. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. Also, Vice President Kamala Harris kicks off a tour focused on energizing young voters concerned about reproductive rights. And this hour. We see families sleeping outside every single week. That in and of itself is an indicator that this problem is like beyond terrible. Massachusetts has opened overflow sites to help families on the shelter system wait list, but advocates say many families are still out in the cold. Increasing clouds in 30s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There's one day to go before the New Hampshire presidential primary. Now it's a two-person race. Following Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' announcement yesterday, he'd suspend his presidential campaign. From member station WBUR, Anthony Brooks reports DeSantis' decision could help former President Donald Trump fend off a challenge from former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. DeSantis promised Trump-like policies but without the drama, but now he's out of the race and has endorsed Trump. Polls show that a majority of his New Hampshire supporters say Trump is their second choice. So this could narrow the path for Nikki Haley, who badly needs a victory in New Hampshire. She's counting on the state's many moderate independents who can pull either a Democratic or a Republican ballot. Voters like Carol DeHaven of Hollis, who says she's voting for Haley in the primary because Trump is a threat to democracy. I like her policies. I like what she stands for. And she is not Trump. However, just like my husband, if it's between Trump and Biden, I will definitely vote for Biden. Trump and Haley are making their final pitches to New Hampshire voters on Monday. For NPR News, I'm Anthony Brooks. Meanwhile, Trump could testify today in his New York defamation trial. Writer E. Jean Carroll says Trump defamed her by calling her a liar. That was after, she said, he sexually assaulted her in the 1990s. Last year, a jury found Trump liable for sexual assault and defamation against Carroll. This new jury is determining whether Trump should pay damages for more defamatory statements. NPR's Andrea Bernstein says the only thing at issue is how much. The jury could order Trump to pay compensatory damages for the two statements he made while president. But, and the judge has already pointed this out to the jury, they can determine punitive damages based on how much money it could take to get Trump to stop. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reporting. Winter storms are still pounding the Central Plains and Midwest this morning. The Associated Press says at least 72 people have died in the U.S. this month in weather-related incidents. The U.S. military says that two Navy SEALs missing off the coast of Somalia are presumed dead. As NPR's Emma Bowman reports, crews had searched for the two SEALs for more than a week. The SEALs were reported missing after a January 11th raid of an Iranian ship, which U.S. defense officials said was carrying ballistic and cruise missiles headed for Houthi fighters in Yemen. During the raid, one Navy SEAL fell into the rough waters. A second followed the SEAL to save him. In a statement on Sunday, U.S. Central Command said that it ended the 10-day search after covering more than 21,000 square miles. The Houthis have attacked commercial ships off the coast of Yemen in the Red Sea for weeks. The U.S. has responded with airstrikes on Houthi-controlled areas in Yemen. The Houthis say their attacks are a show of support for Palestinians facing Israeli attacks in Gaza. Emma Bowman, NPR News. 
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shenhoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Classes are canceled again today for Newton Public School students as the teacher strike there continues. Educators and city officials failed to reach a new contract agreement during negotiations this weekend. Teachers authorized a strike last week and walked off the job Friday. Teacher strikes are illegal in the state. A superior court judge is ordering the teachers to return to work. The Boston City Council plans to reconsider its decision not to accept a $13 million terrorism preparedness grant. As WBUR Simone Rios reports, the money is intended for counterterrorism training for area law enforcement. The Department of Homeland Security grant would fund exercises, training, and operational needs around terrorism threats. New Council President Ruth Z. Louis-Gen says councilors didn't initially have enough time to review the program, so she voted with half the council not to accept the money. I think that we have a role on the city council to be accountable and to hold institutions accountable, and I think that we now have more information about how these grants will be used. Some politicians lambasted the council's failure to accept the grant on behalf of the city. State Senator Nick Collins filed a bill to strip city officials of authority to approve public safety and health grants. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The New Hampshire primary is tomorrow, and local election officials across the state are stocking up on ballots, supplies, and volunteers. Many towns and cities are bringing on extra workers to help process a potentially large number of write-in ballots. In the town of Stratum, moderator Dave Emanuel said they'll have 10 extra people on hand to help process and count ballots once polls close. Each table will count a batch of ballots, and then they'll switch batches of ballots and recount them. And we'll do it several times. And the more people we have doing it, the faster we can validate our numbers. Most New Hampshire polling places will open tomorrow morning between 7 and 8 a.m. One of the highest-ranking Democrats in the Massachusetts House is retiring. Provincetown Representative Sarah Peake says she will not seek re-election. Peake first took office in 2007. She's served nine terms, becoming second assistant majority leader and head of the Cape Cod delegation. She plans to finish out her term, which ends in December. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Celtics beat the Rockets on the road yesterday. Final score in Houston was 116-107. to The Seas remain in Texas tonight. They'll take on the Dallas Mavericks at 8.30. The Bruins skate on home ice today. They host the Winnipeg Jets at 7 p.m. We'll start today with clear skies, but a breeze moves clouds in as the day goes on. High temperatures will reach the upper 30s. Tonight, partly cloudy and breezy with temperatures around 30. Tomorrow, a chance of afternoon rain, otherwise mostly cloudy with temperatures reaching near 40. It's 19 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. New Hampshire holds its presidential primary tomorrow with the Republican contest down to two. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dropped out yesterday and endorsed Donald Trump. The former president has a significant lead over Nikki Haley, his final challenger for the GOP's presidential nomination. NPR's Ashley Lopez is in Manchester, New Hampshire. I just checked the temperature here for Manchester, Ashley, and it says 12, 12 degrees. I hope you're inside. Uh, I am. Okay, <laughs> good. Good. Morning. good. I can't, can't wait to hear from the campaign trail later today. But for the moment, you're warm. So yeah. how did DeSantis fall apart so completely? I mean, well, I, Ron DeSantis's campaign had trouble from the start, right? I don't know who remembers his campaign's announcement on Twitter Live, but it was kind of a disaster. Mm-hmm. And that really did set the tone for the rest of the campaign. Notably, there was a lot of turnover in his staff, including campaign manager resets, which really did not help. And while DeSantis did poll pretty well before he got in the race, once he actually announced, he really wasn't able to translate that into support for his campaign. So realizing that he probably wouldn't do particularly well New Hampshire or on the next voting contest in Nevada, he decided to cut his losses and drop out, which I guess isn't too surprising. It feels fair to ask if any particular kind of campaign would have worked for DeSantis, given the person he was trying to dethrone, if that's the word. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, even though this started as like a fairly crowded field of candidates for the GOP nomination, I mean, it never really was all that competitive, right? Trump has had an almost immovable lock on the nomination since the very beginning. And DeSantis's campaign is particularly interesting to look at, right? Because he was sort of positioned as this like Trump-like character, except that he doesn't have all the legal baggage that Trump is dealing with right now. So if voters cared about those legal issues and Trump's electability in the midst of all that, they would have had more support for DeSantis, but they just didn't. And this race looks pretty much like the way it started. Although we do have one challenger left, Nikki Haley, who has said again and again and again that things could be different once she is the single challenger, and now she is. Yeah, that's right. And and I I would say like New Hampshire is going to be a good place for her to sort of like make that case. In comparison to Iowa, they're likely to be more moderate voters weighing in on this race. That's because New Hampshire allows independent and unaffiliated voters to cast a ballot in a GOP or Democratic primary. I should also note that in New Hampshire, there are more unaffiliated registered voters and there are actually registered Republicans or Democrats. Hmm. So this is a particular help to Haley because she's a favorite among more moderate voters. Uh, Closed primaries or caucuses tend to be dominated by those base voters who are a little further from the center politically. And Haley also does better among more educated voters and New Hampshire's population happens to have a higher education attainment compared to some of these other early states in the race. And I guess we should define our terms when we say moderate or, yeah. or not. I mean, if, if you were to ask Haley, she would define herself as conservative. If you went through her policy positions, they are conservative. But really what we're talking about is, are you for Trump or for something else in the Republican Party? And Haley is arguing for something else uh, right. in the Republican Party. Now, what factor will those 12 degree temperatures or whatever you're going to have tomorrow play in, in, the, in the turnout tomorrow? We'll see. Uh, For now, New Hampshire's Secretary of State David Scanlon is predicting record turnout tomorrow. His office said in a statement late last week that they predict 322,000 votes will be cast in the state's Republican presidential primary on Tuesday. So we'll see. (laughs) Okay. All right. NPR's Ashley Lopez in Manchester, New Hampshire. Stay warm. Thanks. Republican strategist Alice Stewart has been listening along with us. She is also in Manchester, New Hampshire. Good morning. 
Uh, good morning, Steve, from a balmy 10 degrees in Manchester. <laughs> oh, it's down to 10. <laughs> Hang in there. What's it been like driving around and talking to people in New Hampshire this past weekend? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've worked on many presidential campaigns, and one thing is for sure about New Hampshire is a lot of them wait till the last minute to make up their mind and to kick the tires and talk to the candidates. You, you see a lot of yard signs on street corners and in yards, many for Trump, many for Nikki Haley. Uh, goes to show they are gearing up for Tuesday, but yard, sti- yard signs don't vote, people do. And uh, as we just heard, they're expecting record turnout. Despite these you know, temperatures in the teens, uh, New Hampshire people are tough. They're walking around in flip-flops and short-sleeved shirts, and th- th- we're going to see record numbers uh, without a doubt on Tuesday because they take this responsibility very seriously. Okay, Trump has been very popular among Republicans, to state the obvious, but Nikki Haley's message is let's move beyond Trump and Biden, by the way. Let's move beyond the past uh, and these disreputable candidates, in her view. Is there not some appeal for that message, even among Republicans? There's a tremendous appeal for it, but, you know, whether or not there's a majority of Republicans resonate behind that remains to be seen. You know, what, basically what we saw out of Iowa is that uh, conservatives and Republicans aren't buying what she's selling, which is she is a better general election candidate than uh, Donald Trump heading up against uh, Joe Biden. And, you know, she, she is making the case that um, she is certainly someone that is uh, free of drama, free of chaos, and head-to-head with Joe Biden, um, she's a better candidate. And look, this, you know, potentially we could see the Granite State being conservatives' last stand and, and how moving forward. Uh, and there's a sense that Republican voters that are supporting Donald Trump uh, coming out in record numbers, it is almost like a, a sugar high with him. There's a short-term gain and long-term pain because uh, they get what they want right now, but come November, there's going to be the added weight and baggage of everything that Donald Trump brings and potentially a more legal peril and potentially a conviction and whether or not that has an impact uh, with uh, Democratic voters and certainly the independent voters, which are, make making or break uh, general election uh, elections uh, with these independent voters uh, and undecideds, that's going to be the real question if, yeah. if that's where Republicans want to go. I suppose it could affect the rest of the ticket as well for Republicans. I want to ask a question, though. In 2016, when Trump ran the first time, there was a lot of Republican opposition to Trump. Trump didn't even get a majority of the primary votes for a long time. But the opposition was divided until very, very late. Now, very early, it's down to a one-on-one race. Could that improve Haley's chances? Uh, I I think, look, a head-to-head matchup with Nikki Haley is exactly what she wants. I spoke to her campaign yesterday. They say game on. But there's also the double-edged sword. Uh, Head-to-head matchup consolidates a majority of the field behind Donald Trump. And we've seen this already. Uh, Many of the other candidates, we just saw... um, DeSantis, as soon as he dropped out uh, yesterday, throw his support behind Trump. Tim Scott, uh, Doug Burgum, uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, all the other candidates. And and I think one thing that's going to be uh, really um, challenging for Nikki Haley is heading into South Carolina. If she were to do well in, in New Hampshire, have the wind at her sails heading into New Hampshire, Donald Trump has rolled out a, a an impressive array of South Carolina leaders that will uh, campaign for him and, in essence, against her. Hmm. So the fact that the Republican uh, you know, 
wing of the party, which is a majority of it right now, is coalesced uh, against her, that's going to be a challenge. But I, I do think, as we said, it's going to benefit her in a state like uh, New Hampshire, mm -hmm. where we have uh, a large number of undeclared voters can come out to vote, and that's going to help her, given that she's a little more, um, little more moderate than Just Donald Trump. Just got a couple seconds here. People have been asking who's angling for the vice presidential nomination. Has Haley made it pretty clear she's not interested by the way she's been questioning Trump's mental fitness and, and, and competency in recent days? Uh, I, I think she is pretty much given all indications. She probably won't be in, extended an invitation. And if she did, it would be difficult for her to take it. Republican uh, I can see someone like... Got to stop like, there. But like, Republican strategist Alice Stewart, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. An American-Palestinian family moved to the Israeli-occupied West Bank last summer, but a few months later, Israel was attacked by militants from the Gaza Strip, killing 1,200 people. That touched off a war in Gaza that, according to the Gaza Ministry of Health, has killed more than 25,000 Palestinians. And now the family finds itself amid a spike in violence in the West Bank. NPR's Aya Batrawi has their story. Taufik Abdeljabbar Ajayk was 17 years old and the oldest of five. He was also Umm Taufik's firstborn. He was, he's the kind of person, he's like to be joking around, messing around. He doesn't know how to sit quiet. Now the house is so quiet. Who's gonna mess with me, Habibi? Who's gonna mess with me now? Ajayk moved with his family to this hillside town of Mazera al Sharqiya from Louisiana where he grew up to build bonds with his cousins and the land. Seven months later, his mom is at his grave. The cemetery is nestled among the green valleys of the West Bank, which are dotted by Palestinian towns surrounded by expanding Jewish settlements and checkpoints. Ajayk was driving through these hills to barbecue with friends on Friday. What happened next is unclear, but his friends and people in town say he was shot in the head by a settler on the road. Israeli police say they're investigating reports an off-duty officer and an Israeli civilian shot at a Palestinian throwing rocks, and that an Israeli soldier was also in the area. He got killed cold-blooded. The town of Mazera al-Sharqiya is teeming with Palestinian-American youth, like 18-year-old Fauzi Omar, who's at Ajayk's funeral. They used to play football together with other American boys in town who have more freedom than the Palestinian boys who live here to move around the West Bank. But no one's safety is guaranteed. Omar says it feels scary here right now. He wants to move back to the U.S. for college, but he wants to have a family and raise kids here on this land. We're not going to give them what they want. We're going to live here. We're going to stay here. Generation and generation. We're going to live here forever. They can't kick us out. Ajayk's mom says she was sure he'd get bored and want to go back to Louisiana. But because of how much he loved it here, she has no regrets about moving. And now he's buried in his land. Yeah, he's buried forever. His land loved him more than me. She mourns him. Entering the ranks of countless other moms who've buried their children in this land. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Mazera al-Sharqiya, West Bank.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news of Ron DeSantis dropping out of the race for the Republican presidential nomination and Nikki Haley's chances against frontrunner Donald Trump in tomorrow's New Hampshire primaries. Also, U.S. officials say the search for two Navy SEALs has ended unsuccessfully. The SEALs were lost in their Arabian Sea during a mission to board a ship and confiscate Iranian-made weapons. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Donald Trump may take the stand in a New York courtroom today to testify in the defamation case filed against him by writer E. Jean Carroll. It's 720. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Morning Edition from NPR News doesn't just tell you what's happening across the country and around the world. We go there so you can listen to it for yourself, whether it's rafting surging rivers in California. Dig in. Keep going. Or taking you to a legendary crab derby in Maryland. you got a squirt bottle behind you and a bobber, okay? Go there every weekday with Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. Clouds move in throughout the day today. Highs will be in the upper 30s. Temperatures fall to the low 30s tonight, and it'll be overcast. Mostly cloudy tomorrow and highs in the upper 30s. There's a slight chance of rain, snow, and sleet beginning around late afternoon. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. One of the most memorable moments of the awards season so far this year came from Lily Gladstone, the first indigenous actress to win a Golden Globe for acting for her performance in Killers of the Flower Moon. And it wasn't so much what she said, but how she said it. That is Gladstone speaking in the Blackfeet language. Gladstone was born in the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. She isn't fluent, but she made a point of noting that the reason she can speak Blackfeet language at all is that her mother, Betty Peace Gladstone, pushed to get that language instruction into their classrooms at an early age. We wanted to hear more about this, so we called her, and she is with us now. Betty Peace Gladstone, Lily's mom, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So, well, first, congratulations. I know that you accompanied your daughter to the Glows. I mean, she shouted you out, and there was a reaction shot of you looking like the proud mom that you no doubt are. (laughs) What was that like? It was um, a lot of pride. Lily has always been a really exceptional person from the moment she was born. And I think the world is not an easy place for exceptional people. 
And to have arrived at that moment with her just felt so right to me. She noted in her remarks that you're not Blackfeet yourself, um, that Lily's dad has that heritage, as also, as I understand it, uh, Nez Perce. Um, I'm here with my mom, <laughs> who, um, even though she's not Blackfeet, worked tirelessly to get our language into our classroom. So I had a Blackfeet language teacher growing up. Um. <laughs> what made you think about language immersion, especially at very early ages? I moved to the reservation as a single woman to work with the Head Start program as their education coordinator. I have a master's degree in child development. It's really a look at the development of human beings, what makes a person the person that they are. The concept of family, community, culture was ever-present. And language is a big part of culture. And then when I moved to the reservation, I saw it in action, just having the experience of children be reflective of who the community is. And that became even closer to my heart once I became a mother. People who have spoken languages other than English have been severely sanctioned for it. You know, we know that kids who spoke Spanish in schools in some places, they were slapped for it or right. hit for it. I think many people are starting to know about the history of the boarding schools where kids were taken from their parents and put into these environments deliberately to kind of strip them of their, you know, native identity. Yes. So tell me more about why you think it matters to have kids be able to speak the languages they speak at home or to learn about them. To start with, there aren't a lot of Blackfeet households left in the United States anyway where the language is fluently spoken at home on a regular basis. But there are ceremonies, really important ancient ceremonies that take place on the Blackfeet Reservation that are done totally in the Blackfeet language. The language carries, uh, and I think this is true of all indigenous languages, it carries a reflection of the people's relationship to the land the creatures, the elements that, that exist in the land, and kinship terms as well. Um, it describes the social relationships between people. And as people study their own language, even if they aren't growing up speaking it, those elements of culture become a lot more apparent to them and, and a lot more dear. And hmm. helps them understand who they are. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. So how did you go about, and you and the, uh, the people who worked with you, obviously, mm -hmm. go about getting this instruction going? Finding the speakers was not the challenge. There were enough fluent speakers in the community who would love to be in a position to teach the language. The challenge was in overcoming institutional barriers to making that happen in a public school setting. Hmm. So finding the funding to support their work and also working with the powers that be, the county superintendent in this case, to be sure that we could build this into the curriculum on a regular basis without calling into question any, any accreditation issues or anything like that for the school. Oh, that's interesting. So is it that they didn't have the kind of credentials that public schools generally recognize? Yeah, that can be a big barrier. We um, brought in the teachers through a side door as a parent-initiated supplemental activity that was funded through this small pocket of money called Indian Education Funds. The Johnson O'Malley Act is a federal act that allocates funds for schools that serve Native kids so that there can be supplemental activities that support their academic success. Was anybody against it? If they were, they were not very vocal about it. 
one of the things you're telling me is that this was kind of brought in as, you know, supplementary. It didn't That's supplant right. language instruction in English, okay? But for some people, it's they feel like, oh, well, it just holds you back, that kids need to mm-hmm. be, this is an English-dominant country, and that kids mm-hmm. need to really be mm-hmm. fluent in English. And I guess what I'm hearing you say is that that didn't really come up. If it had come up, I would have addressed it, because the studies actually show that Bilingual people excel in their native language after about 10 years of age. All of the scores of bilingual kids tend to really take off in terms of reading comprehension, in terms of, you know, the richness of their writing, vocabulary, that type of thing. And the brain really welcomes multiple languages. You know, it makes the brain more complex. It makes thinking more complex. What difference do you think it made in Lily's life? She became a really good self-advocate. She, I think, felt very empowered to address some misperceptions about Natives, to share more about who she was with her peers, even in high school, to even be granted the opportunity to create kind of a parallel exploration in, in curriculum in some of her classes that she could say, you know, I'd really like to look at this from a Native perspective or a Blackfeet perspective. So I think because she grew up in that kind of bicultural somewhat bilingual environment, she just felt that was the way education should be. Well, you did good, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just, you know, a combination of the right person, the right time, the right place, and supporting other folks in their efforts. Well, thank you so much. That's Betty Peace Gladstone, Lily's mom. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on Morning Edition. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel gives us an update on how families are faring while waiting for a spot in Massachusetts' shelter system. It's 7.29. Join Here and Now's Robin Young on Tuesday, February 6th at City Space for a conversation with Pulitzer Prize finalist Daniel Mason. He'll be talking about his hit novel, North Woods. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley says voters have a clear choice in tomorrow's New Hampshire primary. Do we want more of the same or do you want something different? Haley was speaking in Derry, New Hampshire yesterday after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced he was suspending his GOP campaign and endorsing former President Donald Trump, who won last week's Iowa caucuses decisively. Every four years, political analysts and candidates debate whether Iowa or New Hampshire is a good predictor of future presidential nominees. NPR's Zheng Yun Han says 2024 is no different. Former New Hampshire Governor John Sununu used to say that Iowa picks corn, New Hampshire picks presidents. 
There's some truth to that. That's because of the two early contests. New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation primary has a better track record of picking the eventual Republican nominee. In the eight GOP primaries since 1976, where an incumbent wasn't running, the Granite State has pinpointed six GOP general election candidates, while just three Iowa winners became the nominee. In 2016, Senator Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucuses, while former President Donald Trump won New Hampshire. Trump, of course, also won the general election that year. Jung Yoon Han, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is WBMR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts community colleges saw an 8% increase in enrollment last fall. Many school leaders credit Mass Reconnect. That's a new financial aid program that covers tuition and fees for residents 25 and older. But as WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the extra applicants are stretching some of the college's resources. All of Massachusetts' 15 community colleges saw increased enrollment last semester from the year before. Mount Wachusett Community College had a 12 percent bump, and Mass Bay had 13 percent. Jason Marsala is the dean of enrollment services at North Shore Community College, which saw a 10 percent increase. He says interest in the new funding stream has been a double-edged sword. I want to be 100 percent clear that these are all wonderful programs, but if you're the person who has to make all the adjustments and fix all the accounts and follow all the money— It's made your life super difficult right now. State higher education leaders say they're lobbying the legislature for more funding to support the schools, and they're working to simplify the state financial aid system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The state is releasing $10 million in aid to help cities and towns still recovering from last summer's floods. The money is part of the supplemental budget signed in December. Farmland and infrastructure in western Massachusetts suffered extensive damage following heavy rains in July and August. The state is also increasing its program to mitigate future climate-related disasters. There's just one day left to go until the New Hampshire presidential primary, and it's now down to a two-person race. Over the weekend, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced he is suspending his campaign. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, the move could help former President Donald Trump fend off a challenge from former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. DeSantis promised Trump-like policies but without the drama, but now he's out and has endorsed Trump. And polls show that a majority of his New Hampshire supporters named Trump as their second choice. So this could narrow the path for Nikki Haley, who badly needs a victory in New Hampshire. She's counting on the state's many moderate independents who can pull either a Democratic or Republican ballot tomorrow. Voters like Carol DeHaven of Hollis, who says she's voting for Haley in the primary because Trump is a threat to democracy. I like her policies. I like what she stands for. And she is not Trump. However, just like my husband, if it's between Trump and Biden, I will definitely vote for Biden. Trump and Haley are making their final pitches to New Hampshire voters today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. It's 734. WBUR supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, where generations have experienced the joys of summer. Daily swim lessons in heated pools and AC for indoors. MaplewoodYearRound.com. The Celtics pulled off a nine-point win in Houston yesterday. Final score in their game against the Rockets was 116-107. to The team now heads to Dallas, where they'll take on the Mavericks tonight at 830. The Bruins are home at the Garden tonight. They'll skate with the Winnipeg Jets at 
7. It'll gradually grow cloudy today. We'll have highs in the upper 30s. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight. Skies will be overcast. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy in upper 30s. There's a slight chance of a combination of rain, snow, or sleep beginning late Tuesday afternoon and into the evening. Then a little snow is likely Wednesday morning. It's 20 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person, at yptc.com NPR. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. It's definitely Monday morning, and this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Just one day before the New Hampshire primary, Donald Trump could be testifying in his own defense in a New York courtroom. Writer E. Jean Carroll has accused him of defaming her when she went public with her account of how he forced himself on her in a New York department store in the 1990s. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has been covering the case. Uh, Andrea, Donald Trump is involved in a few legal cases. What is this one in particular about? How much Donald Trump will have to pay Eugene Carroll for the harm, she says, she suffered in the wake of statements he made while he was president, calling her a liar and saying, quote, she's not my type. In dramatic testimony last week, Carroll described how in June of 2019, while alone in a hotel room in Manhattan the night her account was published in New York magazine, she began receiving a torrent of messages from supporters of Donald Trump calling her a hag, a liar, ugly, deserving to be raped and even murdered. When asked by her lawyers when that stopped, she replied the messages never stopped, that each time Donald Trump makes a statement disparaging her, she receives what she called a flood of slime. And Trump has not stopped. Just this weekend, he posted on social media, quote, I've said it once and I'll say it again a thousand times. I never heard of Eugene Carroll, adding, the whole thing is made up and a disgusting hoax. All right, so tell us why Trump might get in trouble for repeating those kinds of comments. So Carroll's lawyer said in a court filing over the weekend they will put Trump's statements from last weekend into evidence. And in a pretrial order, Judge Lewis Kaplan told the Trump side Trump could not deny he'd committed assault because that was already established last May in Eugene Carroll's first trial. This lawsuit is over the statements Trump made in 2019 while president. Those are the ones that Carol said really hurt her reputation. She said prior to that, she was known as a sunny advice columnist, telling people, for example, how to keep their marriages together. But that after Trump's remarks, a sizable portion of the country no longer finds her credible. Okay, so tell us then what kind of damages uh, the jury might order. The jury could order Trump to pay compensatory damages for the two statements he made while president, but, and the judge has already pointed this out to the jury, they can determine punitive damages based on how much money it could take to get Trump to stop. By way of comparison, late last year in an unrelated defamation trial, an unrepented Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York and a Trump ally, was ordered to pay nearly $150 million in his defamation suit. So that's the kind of territory we may be in. Yeah, so given all that, then why would Trump want to testify? Trump's legal team says he has the right to give context for his remarks in the White House. Their defense is that Carroll also received accolades and positive feedback. But Trump has had trouble following the court's rules. 
Last week, when the plaintiffs played a video from last spring of Trump calling Carroll a liar as part of their evidence, Trump said from the defense table audibly, that's true. He's already been admonished by the judge and could face sanctions if he keeps that up. All right, so what do we see today? One plaintiff witness, one defense witness, and then possibly Donald Trump. As I've come to learn in these last few months, we will know if that happens, when that happens. He's been shuttling back and forth from the New York courtroom to the New Hampshire primary, the campaigning. And we expect that to continue. All right, that's NPR's Andrew Bernstein. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Thank you. A recent survey finds a majority of registered voters wants political candidates to act against climate change. That includes some Republicans, although the Republican percentages tend to be lower. A group of young conservatives is using New Hampshire's primary to urge candidates to be conservative with the planet. Here's Mara Hoplamazian of New Hampshire Public Radio. At a brewery in Manchester last week, prospective voters gathered to hear New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu talk about GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley's approach to addressing climate change. Making that transition, investing in those technologies, making sure those things happen. Uh, It's not climate change denial. It's not a climate change extremism. It's allowing that free market to happen as, as best as it possibly can. Sununu, who endorsed Haley, showed up on her behalf at an event hosted by the American Conservation Coalition. It's a national advocacy group focused on conservative approaches to taking action on climate change. Organizers say former President Donald Trump, the Republican presidential frontrunner, did not respond to an invitation to schedule his own event. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who suspended his campaign Sunday, declined. But despite lukewarm interest from candidates, Brian Martinez, who leads the Eastern Division for the group, says climate change is something conservative voters nationally are paying attention to, especially younger ones. Young people overwhelmingly believe that climate change is real because we're seeing it. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin. I can't tell you the last time I had a white Christmas. Polling from the Yale program on climate change communication shows about 13 percent of conservative Republicans say they'd prefer to vote for a candidate that supports climate action. Almost half of liberal or moderate Republicans say the same. Republicans who are concerned about climate change tend to be younger. And Martinez says that's important for politicians to keep in mind. Candidates don't need to be the climate candidate, but they need to realize that if they're going to win young people, they're going to need to come to the table on climate. Coming to the table on climate could be more important than ever. Last year was the hottest year on record, by a long shot. That's according to measurements from federal agencies. Trump continues to deny facts about climate change, but Martinez says he's optimistic about Haley as a choice for younger, climate-focused Republicans. Ambassador Haley has, has gone on the record, you know, saying climate change is real and wants to do something about it. Haley has acknowledged climate change is real, but in New Hampshire, she's promoted expanding fossil fuel use, the main cause of human-driven climate change. We will make sure our pipelines are moving. We will do the Keystone Pipeline. We'll export as much liquefied natural gas as we can. There are other options for voters concerned about the environment, like voting for Democrats who've increasingly pushed for climate action. But for first-year Dartmouth student Jack Marino, he's hoping to see climate change solutions that align with his economic and social views as a conservative. He says he and his peers want Republican leadership on climate. Denying climate change, especially for young conservatives, causes serious problems. Uh, Embracing the climate crisis, finding these, these pragmatic solutions, appeals to young conservatives, especially in New Hampshire. But in New Hampshire, like other parts of the country, for many voters, economic issues are crowding out everything else. 
24-year-old Claire Murphy says her first choice was DeSantis, but now she'll support Trump. She's living with her mom. I can't even move out on my own right now because, like, the apartment rent is so high and, like, everything is so high. Murphy says she thinks it's important for young people to be aware of environmental issues. But she's not voting on them. For NPR News, I'm Mara Hoplamazian in Concord, New Hampshire. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBMR's Morning Edition, more on tomorrow's New Hampshire primary. It's set to be a big test for Nikki Haley as the only remaining alternative to frontrunner Donald Trump. We'll have live special coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primaries at 7 tomorrow on 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues as you get closer to your vote. Upper 30s today under skies that will grow increasingly overcast around 30 tonight and It'll be cloudy. Upper 30s again tomorrow and mostly cloudy with a slight chance of rain in the late afternoon. It's 20 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. A new class action lawsuit claims Dunkin' Donuts is discriminating by charging extra for non-dairy milk. The suit says that it's medically necessary for people with milk allergies or lactose intolerance to use non-dairy alternatives. It also points out that the price of almond, oat, and soy milk is similar or cheaper to dairy milks. Those who filed the suit are asking for $5 million in damages and for the chain to stop charging for milk alternatives. A popular Weymouth brewery plans to open its second location. Vitamin C Brewing is opening a new location in Plymouth. It says it plans to partner with local organizations and take part in community events. One of the best Valentine's Day experiences around the world is at a resort in the Berkshires. According to a review from The Points Guy, Canyon Ranch in Lenox has one of the most romantic Valentine's Day hotel packages. The package includes a meal from a Michelin-starred chef, sauna sessions, and skiing. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBMR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts used to be seen as a model for how to handle family homelessness. 
But the state's system has been tested by sharp increases in need. Now, advocates say some homeless families in Massachusetts are sleeping in their cars and others are sleeping at Logan Airport. That's despite the fact that lawmakers ordered the Healy administration to create overflow space for households on the wait list for the state's family shelter system. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel joins us now to explain what's happening. Good morning. Good to be here. So how many families are on the wait list now for the state shelter system? And what do we know about how they're doing? So there are well over 550 families on the wait list right now. And advocates say the situation is increasingly dire for these families. They have met all the criteria for the state family shelter system, and that is not easy, I will tell you. But as we know, the state announced late last year that the system is full and began putting families on a wait list. Advocates say too many of these waitlisted families are being left in the cold. We see families sleeping outside every single week. That in and of itself is an indicator that this problem is like beyond terrible. There isn't really a safety net any longer. I mean, if the safety net is you're approved and we'll call you sometime, that's not a safety net. It just feels really, trying to think of the best word, barbaric. That is Rachel Hand of Family Promise North Shore Boston, Emily Herzig of the Northeast Justice Center, and Catherine Addy Bell of the Central West Justice Center. They say the state doesn't have enough overflow space and it's not evenly distributed around Massachusetts. So how much has the state been able to help families on the wait list? Yeah, so the state has opened three overflow sites. They serve just under 200 families. And then there are also private sites created through United Way that support another 73 families. All told, the state estimates that's about 800 people. But Rupa, that is not even half of the wait list. And the overflow sites can be pretty bare bones. Now, some are hotel rooms and private rooms, but others are communal accommodations. So at one site, there are 200 cots lined up in two rooms, and families can only be there during the night, and they have to go elsewhere to shower. The state is working on putting in temporary showers, but it gives you a sense of the conditions. Yeah, and that still leaves many families on the wait list that can't get into these overflow sites, right? Yeah, that is correct. A spokesperson for the state told me these sites are almost always full. And Scott Rice, who oversees the system for the state, said in a statement, there remains unmet need and we urgently need more sites. That is something officials say they are working on. But right now there are parts of the state and big parts of the state with no overflow sites. So Western Massachusetts is one example. Say some family is able to get a spot on the overflow, which is not a guarantee, then they might have to travel several hours to get there. Catherine Addy Bell, again of the Central West Justice Center, says this can be especially hard for kids. They're now being yanked away from maybe what is the most stable part of their lives, which is their school, their classmates, their friends. Also, you know, many of my clients are working. You know, this is the working poor. They're at risk of losing their jobs, which is totally counterproductive. And for context, the state says about two-thirds of waitlisted families are in the greater Boston area. And what happens when families don't get an overflow spot? 
Yeah, some churches and community groups have opened their doors, and many families are doubled up with friends and relatives, some staying, I've heard about unheated basements, abusive relationships. It's not ideal. I have also seen 40 or more people, including lots of kids, sleeping at Logan Airport. And many advocates I've spoken to say they know families sleeping in their cars. One group even created a handout on how to safely stay in your car in winter in Massachusetts. The bottom line here is that there is now overflow shelter, which wasn't the case when the waitlist was first implemented. But these overflow sites are not always ideal, and there is not enough of them. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up at 820 here on WBUR's Morning Edition, we visit a school in Florida that's using breathing exercises to help students relax and stay calm and focused. Studies show that helps kids succeed. It's 751. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. I'm Robin Young. Italian-Americans were so proud when New York Giants quarterback Tommy DeVito did his hand gesture. What a throw by DeVito! He's got a little beachies there, staying alive. And Tommy does the Italian thing! <laughs> but some thought of stereotypes, past discriminations, lynchings. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is out of the GOP presidential race as voters in New Hampshire head to the polls tomorrow for the primaries there. Donald Trump may take the stand today to testify in a defamation case filed against him by writer E. Jean Carroll. And the military says it's ending its search for two Navy SEALs who were lost while trying to board a ship and confiscate Iranian-made weapons. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Ukrainian author Tanya Malarchuk says when she set out to write a linear, classical, historical fiction about her home country, she got about 60 pages in and realized it couldn't be done. Because there are no straight story of Ukrainian 20th century. It's so many gaps, so many black holes, so much was killed. In her book, Forgottenness, Malarchuk explores the upheaval and uncertainty in Ukraine's history and how it's shaped what it means to be Ukrainian. She does this through two characters, a real figure in history, Vyacheslav Lipinski. He's an ethnic Pole born in Ukraine, and he played a key role in Ukraine's independence movement, even though he didn't live to see its freedom. And an unnamed Ukrainian woman writer who discovers his death notice in a newspaper and becomes obsessed with learning about the life he lived. The two are separated by time, but as the writer researches his story, their lives become intertwined as Ukrainians. That writer character, in many ways, is Malarchuk. She says reading Lipinski's letters taught her about herself. 
the famine in the 30s, it also a part of the book. My grandmother was is a survivor, but she lost the whole family mm. and uh, grown up as an orphan. And uh, that was also my history. So she got and then my father and my father me. And so she gave her trauma. Um, I just wanted to make clear for our listeners that you're referring to the great Ukrainian famine in the 30s that killed millions of Ukrainians. Almost four million. And your grandmother's entire family was among them? Yes. And you were saying it created this transgenerational trauma that was passed down to your generation. Yes. These common aspirations and traumas, including the banning of the Ukrainian language that started with the Russian Empire before the Soviet Union starved Ukrainians, are what create the bonds of a nation, a belief Lipinski, the main character, shared. He wrote, Your own people are those who live alongside you. Common land creates common goals, not language or religion. I think that was the most important thing for me Mm. because he saw in the future, uh, in the Second World War, uh, what happened to Polish community in Ukraine, what happened with Jewish community. So The killing of people based on their religion or their ethnicity. Yes. And I think that was the right way to go, but nobody was hearing of him. That was wrong time Mm. for his ideas. The other thing is it's a very human story. It's not just Lipinski's thirst for a future independence, but for happiness and love. He's a father. He's a husband who ultimately gets divorced. And he failed everywhere. He failed in all of it. No independent (laughs) Ukraine, gets divorced, not a great dad. Yes. Yes. Um, You know, he ultimately dies. You describe how he dies. And he tells his daughter, it, meaning Ukraine, is an anarchic nation. What is he saying there? And, And how does that apply to Ukraine and Ukrainians today? This book is about being a victim and it's about to understand that you were a victim because, you know, it's not automatically so that you understand that that was not normal. It's not normal to live like that. It's a big work before you understand that. It's a start to to give up your victim role. And uh, I thought it's enough to find out the story, the history, to reconstruct some gaps and then you are healed. Now you can start the new, a new life. Now that you've written the story, shared the story, you can begin to heal with the history here. Yes. And then came full-scale war, and I understand that uh, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. So there is no time for most people, for most Ukrainians, to take stock, to reflect, to heal, because they're still in a fight for their nation. It's a luxury. You can do it only if you have this time and you, when you have this tranquility, peace and quiet. Yes. Yeah. And Ukrainians, they never had this time. They have always had to survive first. Mm. And now my, my good friends are Ukrainian military and many of them are already dead. Oh, wow. And they were good writers. They were very young. You know, this is the war of my generation, of my friends. And um, I saw recently an interview with James Baldwin, mm-hmm. who is very important in this moment for me. One of the most profound yes. writers in American history on the Black experience in this country. And the journalist was always asking him about the book and about his writing. And he was very angry. And he said, I'm a writer, but I don't want to talk about this. I'm a citizen mm-hmm. and I have to say something else. 
my friends are being killed. And this is um, the reality in which I am living now. I have to talk about my books, but actually I try to say poetically that my friends are being killed. Wow. Um, You just made me want to cry. I'm just thinking about how many places in the world right now, Ukraine and several others, are going through that violence that will not stop, that will not rest so that you can write and you can think. I don't believe anymore in the literature. You know, I, oh. sometimes I think it's not enough to be a writer. Why? Because, um, you know, all writers, I think, somewhere they believe that they can change this world a little bit with their texts to make it better. But uh, now it's, uh, I don't believe it anymore. Literature is something that you are writing afterwards uh, all the time, afterwards about the tragedies. Already perpetrated, when they've already happened, when nobody stopped them. And uh, then uh, this vicious circle is going on. Yeah. When did you feel like, I don't believe in literature anymore? It was an illusion for me. So I don't believe in this illusion anymore. But I can think only when I write. So it's the only one thing for me to be alive. Author Tanya Malachuk, her novel, translated from Ukrainian, is called Forgottenness. Tanya, thank you. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the race for the Republican nomination for president and thrown his support behind Donald Trump. It's Monday, January 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up ahead of the New Hampshire primaries tomorrow, Nikki Haley is campaigning as the only Republican who can beat President Joe Biden. Do you want to win in November or not? Do you want your kids to be proud in November or not? And this hour, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi leads a consecration ceremony for a controversial Hindu temple built on the site of a historic mosque. Plus, community colleges say the new Massachusetts program providing free tuition to adults has them struggling to keep up with demand. These are all wonderful programs, but if you're the person who has to make all the adjustments and fix all the accounts and follow all the money, it's made your life super difficult right now. Increasing clouds and 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. New Hampshire holds its presidential primary tomorrow. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports state election officials are predicting record turnout for the Republican race. New Hampshire Secretary of State David Scanlon is predicting 322,000 Republican votes will be cast in the state's forthcoming presidential primary. If Scanlon's estimates are correct, it would be the highest recorded turnout in the state's GOP primary in recent history. Currently, the highest turnout for a GOP primary in the Granite State was in 2016, when almost 283,000 ballots were cast in the Republican 
Republican primary that year. Usually a good indicator of how turnout is looking is early voting and mail ballot returns, but that's not a metric New Hampshire can use. That's because the state doesn't offer in-person early voting and its mail ballot program is pretty limited. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. The New Hampshire GOP contest is down to two Republican candidates, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and former President Donald Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has suspended his presidential campaign. Trump says DeSantis has offered him his backing. In so doing, he was very gracious and he endorsed me, so I appreciate it. I appreciate that, and I also look forward to working with Ron and everybody else to defeat crooked Joe Biden. Meanwhile, Trump may testify today in his New York defamation case. A prior jury has already found he is liable for sexual assault and defamation against writer E. Jean Carroll. This New York jury is deciding how much in damages Trump should pay for different defamatory statements against Carroll. Weather forecasters have issued ice storm warnings this morning in parts of Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri. A winter storm continues to pelt the midsection of the U.S. The Palestinian Health Ministry says Gaza is experiencing an outbreak of hepatitis A. It spreads through contaminated food, water, or by direct contact. NPR's Ea Batrawi reports. Two million people in the Gaza Strip have been forced out of their homes by Israeli bombardment. Most are now in overcrowded UN-run shelters or in tents without enough food, clean running water, electricity, or proper health care. Dr. Yusuf Bauzeya is the health ministry's director of international coordination in the West Bank. He says just 84 people had hepatitis A in all of Gaza in 2022, compared to thousands since the outbreak of the war October 7th. It's more and more and more. I assure you that this is at least 10,000 cases of hepatitis A, and it is like an iceberg phenomena because there's an underreporting. UN aid agencies warned Gaza could see more people dying from diseases than Israeli attacks, which alone have killed at least 25,000 people, according to Gaza's health ministry. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Ramallah, West Bank. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Newton Public School teachers and city leaders still have not reached a deal for a new contract. That means there's no class again today for students as teachers continue their strike. Educators and the mayor are at odds over school funding. Teacher strikes are illegal in the state. A superior court judge is ordering Newton teachers to end the strike during negotiations. The Boston City Council could look at limiting brokers' fees on rental transactions in the city. That's one of the goals of new council president Ruth Z. Louisian. WBUR Simone Rios reports. Louisian says addressing the city's housing shortage will be a big part of the council's agenda this year. The council president from Hyde Park says on top of first and last month's rent, along with a security deposit, brokers' fees can make it prohibitive to afford an apartment. Under her leadership, she says the council will look to address upfront rental costs. It's something that prior administrations have taken a look at as well, including the Walsh administration. So we're trying to see if we can actually do something about that. Walsh launched a working group to study brokers' fees in Boston, though nothing came of the effort. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Governor Healy intends to file the Municipal Empower Act today. The measure would allow Massachusetts cities and towns to increase local taxes on meals and lodging. They could also impose an additional motor vehicle excise surcharge. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. 
One provision of the bill would allow municipalities to increase the local meals tax from 0.75% to 1%. Massachusetts Restaurant Association President Stephen Clark says that would hurt consumers. The cost of dining out is already pretty high, and now we want to take out an additional $15 million from household budgets. Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation President Doug Howgate says giving more power to local communities serves a purpose. Whether it's investments or diversify their budget, I think in all those areas, there's some real value there. The Healy administration says the bill was crafted after input from local officials. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 8.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include ECMC Foundation, working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. The Celtics secured a win in Houston yesterday. Final score against the Rockets was 116-107. to They remain on the road in Texas tonight. Their game against the Dallas Mavericks begins at 8.30. The Bruins will skate on home ice tonight. They host the Winnipeg Jets at 7. We'll start today with clear skies, but a breeze moves clouds in as the day goes on. High temperatures will reach the upper 30s. Tonight, partly cloudy and breezy with temperatures around 30. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with high temperatures near 40. There's a slight chance of a combination of rain, sleet, and snow beginning around late afternoon. It's 21 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. In tomorrow's New Hampshire primary, the ballot will include the names of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and other Republicans who've already dropped out. While it's only the second contest of the GOP nominating season, it could be one of the last gasps of the idea that this is a competitive race. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith has spent the final days of the primary campaign following Nikki Haley and has this report on her effort to beat out former President Donald Trump. At a bar and grill in Milford, New Hampshire, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley delivered the pitch that she is the most electable Republican in the race. And if you look, there was a poll that came out today. It's not clear which poll she's referring to. Trump is down by seven points. Well, this is against Joe Biden, by the way. Trump is down by seven points, and I beat Biden. There aren't any public polls showing her ahead of Trump in New Hampshire. At multiple events every day, Haley is trying to connect one-on-one with potential supporters. What's your name? Hadley. And how old are you? Ten. Turning serious, Haley gives the fifth grader some advice. And you know what? It's all about being strong, right? And when you feel those scary feelings inside, you just push through. That message has a lot in common with how Haley is conducting her campaign. I said I wanted to be strong in Iowa. I feel like we did that. We started at 2%. We ended with 20%. I was happy with that. I said we want to be stronger in New Hampshire. We're going to do that. We won't know what stronger is until the numbers come in. New Hampshire represents Haley's best and possibly last chance for a truly strong performance against Trump. Independent voters are allowed to vote in the GOP primary, and the electorate is more moderate and less MAGA. Case in point, Hadley's dad, Tyler Craig. I 100% think that she has a shot. I think that if enough Republicans and independents get a sense of sanity back and are less interested in drama and just pettiness, we're tired of pettiness, and that's what Nikki Haley would take away from where we are today. Craig is a Republican and insists he is pro-Haley and not just anti-Trump. 
though plenty of people at Haley's events fall into the latter category. Warren Witherell is from Keene. I really feel that somebody has to stop Trump and she's a likely candidate. Turn on a TV in New Hampshire and you'll see the state's popular Republican governor, Chris Sununu, making that argument on repeat. And now we have a chance to reset the election for our entire country. Nikki is the only one who can beat Donald Trump. That is among the $31 million in ads Haley and her allied super PAC have run in New Hampshire, more than $5 million of it in the past week, according to an NPR analysis of data from the tracking firm Ad Impact. Trump and his allies have spent about half as much. As she closes out her campaign in New Hampshire, Haley is imploring voters to give her a chance to prevent a Biden-Trump rematch few in America seem to really want. Do you want to win in November or not? Do you want to be scared in November or not? Do you want your kids to be proud in November or not? Then let's do it. But even if winning New Hampshire weren't a reach, Ben Ginsburg, a retired Republican attorney who is a leading expert on the nominating process, says the deck is stacked against her. This race is effectively over. I think even if Nikki Haley can win in New Hampshire, she'll still have a real uphill slog and she'll have to win, absolutely have to win her home state of South Carolina at the end of February. Ginsburg says no Republican candidate has won the nomination without their home state. But Haley insists she knows how to win in South Carolina and will have plenty of time to build up momentum. Trump is angling to knock her out before she ever gets that chance. He's already saying it's time to unify the Republican Party. Behind the front runner, of course. Tamara Keith, NPR News, New Hampshire. This week begins with uncertainty over U.S. aid to Ukraine. Some Republicans in Congress have blocked additional assistance. President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, says the money is essential as Ukraine battles Russia. That requires mobilizing the bipartisan support we have in both the House and Senate, converting that into actual votes. Many Republicans agree, but have demanded that the aid be combined with a change in U.S. border policies. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson met with President Biden at the White House last week and sounded unconvinced. We understand that there's concern about uh, the safety, security, sovereignty of Ukraine, but the American people have those same concerns about our own domestic sovereignty and our safety and our security. Senators have been working on a bipartisan agreement on immigration. Amid that debate in Washington, we placed a call to Kyiv. We reached a principal advisor to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Andrei Yermak is the head of the office of the president. He steered clear of commenting on American politics, but through an interpreter, he did talk of his country's predicament. The war is nearly two years old, and a Ukrainian offensive last summer didn't end it. How urgent is the need for additional U.S. aid? The aid is really urgent because the price of time at war is human lives. And undoubtedly, we do not have a single moment when we would forget that this awful, horrible war is going on. I'd like to ask about the urgency. NPR has interviewed Oleksandra Ustinova, who is the chair of Ukraine's Parliamentary Commission on Arms, 
who recently said that deliveries of artillery shells to Ukraine are sharply down and the army has had to sharply reduce the number of artillery shells that it fires, that this is even leading to losing ground. What can you add to that description? Our heroes, our warriors, are holding the positions. But it is really hard when we lack the shells, when we feel this lack of what is necessary. And as of today, we liberated, in fact, approximately 50% of the territories, which Russia had occupied since the 24th of February 2022. But of course, it is very hard today for our warriors, for our soldiers, when they feel this deficit of artillery shells, and they see this deficit of lots of other necessary things. So undoubtedly, again, aid is urgent. Everything needs to be done in a timely manner. Do I understand you to say that you lack sufficient ammunition for your new troops to train as you expand the army? Of course, yes, I would like to say that we feel this need. Is your country ready for another year of war? Do you have any other scenario? At this point, Zelensky's advisor, Yermak, switched over into English. He said nobody is ever ready for war. It's uh, uh, anti-human, it's anti-logic. But at the same time, we are not ready uh, for any compromise for our independence, for our territorial integrity, for sovereignty, and for our freedom. All the world, it depends of the Ukrainian success. He says Ukrainians are dying to protect all of Europe. His boss, President Zelensky, just attended a meeting of global leaders to appeal for greater assistance. Mr. Yermak, has Ukraine's cause lost some international support as the world moves on to other crises? Do you worry about being forgotten? To the meeting in Davos, where we had 82 countries, and even the countries which have complicated relations between themselves, they were still sitting at the same table, and for more than eight hours we were discussing Ukraine, how to stop the war, how to bring just peace how to develop the unified plan of the responsible international community and to how to achieve it. I don't agree with you. I do not see that. I don't see that the support of Ukraine has decreased. You know, we are living in the world where something always takes place. The conflicts, the wars are taking place. But, you know, Ukraine is still one of the most important topics because this is the biggest war in Europe since the times of the World War II. That is why I do not feel that. As you know, there may be Americans listening who would ask, why does the war in Ukraine matter to me? How would you answer an American who puts that question to you? I feel really deep respect to the American people. And first of all, I would begin my answer with the following. We are unmeasurably grateful. We will never forget what has been done by the American people for us. Andre Yermak went on to offer a pragmatic answer to this question. He said the United States may be sending aid to Ukraine, 
but much of it comes in the form of weapons that American workers are paid to make. So most of the money stays here. Yermak argued this was in the interest of the American economy as well as American security. America the United States of America are to some extent a guarantor of security, one of the guarantors, powerful guarantors of security in the world. And that is why the United States really today are playing the key role in the understanding of each of the aggressors in the world. They should understand that there will be response and the free democratic world is still stronger than any aggressor. Mr. Yermak, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Andre Yermak is the head of the office of the president of Ukraine. He spoke in Kiev on Friday. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news today of Ron DeSantis dropping out of the race for the Republican presidential nomination ahead of tomorrow's primaries in New Hampshire. Also, an outbreak of hepatitis A in the Gaza Strip. Plus, Russian officials say strikes on an occupied city in eastern Ukraine killed at least 27 people yesterday. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, today marks 51 years since the Supreme Court Roe v. Wade ruling will look at the role the issue of abortion rights may play in the election for president. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. Bus terminals around the country are being sold off and shuttered. For low-income bus passengers, that often means no place to eat, shelter, or use the restroom while waiting for a ride. This station is gone. I'm not going to take the bus anymore because I'm not going to be outside. It's too dangerous. I'm not doing it. Mm -mm. I'm Ari Shapiro. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Clouds move in throughout the day today. Highs will be in the upper 30s. Temperatures fall to the low 30s tonight, and it'll be overcast. Mostly cloudy tomorrow and highs in the upper 30s. There's a slight chance of rain, snow, and sleet beginning around late afternoon. It's 22 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary 2. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunard.com slash crossing. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. 
Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Would you linger with me for just a moment for this story on mindfulness? Taking a few minutes to breathe and relax and center yourself. Mindfulness helps people get calm and focused and also apparently helps kids. Research suggests students who are more mindful have better grades and fewer absences. NPR's Ping Huang paused a moment, gave this some thought, and visited a school in Florida. It's 8.30 on a sunny winter morning. The cafeteria tables at the Sullivan Elementary School are packed with kids hanging out, catching up, and eating breakfast. So they have an apple strudel, they have fruit juice, and they have a banana and milk. Principal Dave McMean is wearing many hats this morning. He's greeting students, picking wrappers and banana peels off the floor, and lining up the kids to send them off to class. Lesson one is self-control. So show me that right now by facing forward. Show me your toes, show me your hands, now show me your body. That means your body is still. When your body is still, then our mind is still and we can focus. Sullivan Elementary School is a public school. It partners with a local nonprofit called Metropolitan Ministries, which supports poor and homeless families in Tampa Bay. Principal McMean says many of the students come from the homeless shelter across the street, and they're dealing with serious stressors outside of school. Students experience uh, these traumas of which sometimes they don't have control over. While we have them, what do we have control over? It's those few moments to say, okay, take that hurt, take that pain, let's figure out how we can release it. Research shows that chronic stress can shrink the brain, especially the parts that play a role in learning and memory, and that mindfulness helps reduce that stress. It's now 8.50 in the morning. Principal McMean takes us to the second and third grade classroom, where a mindfulness session plays over the loudspeaker. Breathing in and out. Placing the hands on the heart. Repeating to yourself. The transformation is amazing. 17 rambunctious kids are now settled at their desks. Their eyes are closed, and today's session is about forgiveness. With forgiveness, the practice happens on the inside of you. For a full eight minutes, they sit quietly. They're not even fidgeting as they contemplate mean things people have said to them and how to let that go. And opening the eyes when you're ready. After the exercise, a student named Grace shares thoughts with the teacher on how mindfulness helps. It can help you like relieve the stress so you're not angry and you don't take it, take it out on somebody else. I tell Principal McMean that the transition I just saw was remarkable. That's what I experience each and every day. So it's very busy, there's a lot of activity, and a lot of things going on, but we come together really quick and then we have to settle. The school uses a daily mindfulness program called Inner Explorer. It's used in about 3,000 schools around the country. Laura Bakosh is the program's founder. We do have a lot of schools that are doing it for a couple of years now consistently and are seeing very substantial improvements in both student behavior as well as student performance. 
The program adapts well-tested stress reduction techniques. Traditionally, these involve intensive lectures, retreats, and long daily practices. But Inner Explorer distills it to 10-minute sessions that can be integrated into the school day. For instance, inviting kids to tune into the sounds they're hearing around them. So right in this moment, you can hear a siren in the background. So we don't tell them what they're hearing, but we just invite them to notice. And as they tune into their sense of sound, that literally is building an attentional skill from a brain standpoint. The same goes for tuning into how they're feeling and practicing how to let things go. Neuroscientist David Cresswell at Carnegie Mellon University says that research on mindfulness is coming up with initial promising results. Showing that mindfulness interventions can broadly reduce suffering, you know, reduce people's stress, reduce their depressive symptomatology, anxiety. But Cresswell says there haven't been large-scale experiments to show how much of an impact it can have on the population level. That is, the science isn't there yet to show whether mindfulness can turn around big systemic problems like loneliness and addiction. Back at Sullivan Elementary, a fifth grader named Avery says he's been practicing mindfulness at school for years, and he finds it helpful. I do it some mornings, not every morning. I just, the mornings that I do it is so I can cope and, like, have a good day. He had just used it at home when he was stressing out over a reading assignment. Avery's day is shaping up to be a pretty good day. Science class this morning smells delicious. The teacher, Patty Ferlita, is making chocolate chip pancakes. What makes the bubbles? Say it again. Gas. Gas, that's what I was looking for. Awesome. Okay, so it's being released, right? That's why we see those bubbles. Okay, that's one indicator. Perlita has been a teacher with the school for 15 years. She says the growing focus on mindfulness has made a big difference with the students. A lot of them really started getting out of the me, 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 and they pay more attention to each other and each other's feelings. And I don't know if you saw, but when Mackenzie answered something correctly there, they hugged her. The kids also high-fived and applauded each other when their classmates got things right. And if a kid is having a hard time, Ferlita says they get a chance to take a minute to breathe and get themselves together. These types of reinforcements during class allow the kids to practice mindfulness throughout the day. It might take until these kids are adults to prove that what they're doing is having a lasting impact. But here at the Sullivan School, they're not waiting for that data because they're seeing the mindfulness working now. Ping Huang, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. WBUR education reporter Carrie Young tells us how Massachusetts community colleges are scrambling to keep up with fast-growing enrollment driven by a new state program that covers tuition and fees for adults. It's 8.29. WBUR supporters include Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. Bridgew.edu.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Tomorrow's New Hampshire primary will be focused on former President Donald Trump and his one-time U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley. The field of Republican presidential candidates narrowed yesterday when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced he was suspending his campaign. DeSantis told supporters in a video message he saw no clear path to victory. DeSantis is endorsing Trump for the GOP nomination. Trump is expected in court today in New York in his defamation trial involving writer E. Jean Carroll. The judge in the case has placed restrictions on what Trump can say should he take the stand. That's because a separate jury last year found Trump sexually abused Carroll decades ago and ordered the former president to pay Carroll $5 million in damages. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has more. Trump has had trouble following the court's rules. Last week, when the plaintiffs played a video from last spring of Trump calling Carroll a liar as part of their evidence, Trump said from the defense table, audibly, that's true. He's already been admonished by the judge and could face sanctions if he keeps that up. A verdict is expected this week on how much more money Trump may have to pay. Sales of existing homes in the U.S. last year dropped to their lowest level in almost 30 years amid high mortgage rates. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There are more than 550 families on the Massachusetts shelter wait list. The state and United Way have set up overflow sites, but they can accommodate less than half of those families. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports that's left many people with nowhere to go. Some families are sleeping in cars or staying with friends. Dozens spent nights at Logan Airport. Emily Herzig with the Northeast Justice Center says there's a ripple effect. I'm in pretty close contact with um, social workers at a hospital in our service area. They are saying that even for newborn babies, they're being told, yeah, the family's eligible, but can you just keep them, hold them there for longer because they don't have a place for them. The head of the state's family shelter system acknowledged an urgent need for more overflow sites. But the state says hospitals have not raised concerns about families staying longer than medically necessary. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Milford Regional Medical Center has a new code of conduct. It says that words or actions that are racist or disrespectful could lead to the hospital denying care. Some groups say the policy is an attack on freedom of speech. Hospital officials say the code is in response to the growing number of acts of violence on health care workers. The Archdiocese of Boston is lowering the confirmation age from 10th grade to 8th grade. Confirmation is a sacrament Catholics take part in to be fully initiated into the church. Cardinal Sean O'Malley says the change is meant to keep young Catholics in the church. The change will be implemented over the next three years. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. The Celtics are celebrating a nine-point win against Houston. The team beat the Rockets 116-107 to yesterday. The Seas now head to Dallas. Their game against the Rockets starts tonight at 8.30. The Bruins play at home tonight. Puck drops in their game against the Winnipeg Jets at 7. It'll gradually grow cloudy today. We'll have highs in the upper 30s. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight. Skies will be overcast. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy in upper 30s. There's a slight chance of a combination of rain, snow, or sleet. 
beginning late Tuesday afternoon and into the evening. Then a little snow is likely Wednesday morning. It's 22 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Deloitte, unlocking innovation takes more than AI or cloud. It takes outcome-focused application, too. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. This week, Democrats are launching an abortion rights campaign to mark the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade. That's the U.S. Supreme Court decision that guaranteed the right to abortion in the U.S. That ruling was overturned in 2022. And since then, in some states, getting an abortion has become almost impossible. The new campaign will include speeches by President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, along with ads featuring women who've been negatively impacted by abortion bans. Now, for more on the role reproductive rights will play in this year's election, I'm joined now by Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley. She's an obstetrician and gynecologist who serves as CEO of Power to Decide. That's a nonprofit that supports access to abortion and other types of reproductive health care. Doctor, since Roe v. Wade was overturned, how have the politics around reproductive rights changed in the U.S.? So much has changed regarding access to abortion and the politics around abortion. It has become so much harder for people to access care and people are confused and feeling stigmatized by the laws. But it's also really important to remember that the crisis in access to abortion care did not begin with the Dobbs decision. For decades, we've seen an increase in medically unnecessary restrictions that have made abortion care harder for people to access in certain states. Moreover, long-standing restrictions on insurance coverage for abortion care have also made care out of reach for people in our communities who struggle to make ends meet. So Roe was never enough to ensure that people had equitable access to quality abortion care and services. But of course, now without the protections of Roe, so much has been uh, harder. And it's now abortion is banned or restricted in within half of the country. And people are having a really hard time navigating the journey. Yeah, how hard is it becoming for people to, to get an abortion now? People are having to travel hundreds of miles out of state, and it's important to know that most people who have abortions are already parents, right? So they have to arrange for childcare for their children, leave the state, take time off from work, and spend precious resources that they may not have. This is really unjust, and what's worse, it's worsening the maternal health care crisis in our country. How big of an issue do you think abortion rights will be in this election year? Because we're seeing polls that show the economy, crime, and immigration are among the top issues for voters. Yeah, I mean, Americans have been forced to reckon with the loss of basic rights to abortion in nearly half the country, and they don't like what they're seeing. Abortion access and reproductive rights is going to be a high priority for voters this year. The midterm elections and recent ballot initiatives show that people are not happy with the attacks on reproductive health care. Each of the seven statewide ballot initiatives about reproductive rights since 2022 has resulted in a victory for abortion rights. So we're likely going to see this become an even bigger issue in the upcoming election. Is there anything Democrats need to do, doctor, to maybe change their messaging on abortion rights? You know, I'm pleased to see that this is becoming, you know, more of an issue and that that more politicians are talking about this and putting this issue front and center. Um, and my sense is that the Biden administration is putting this issue 
in the forefront because it's not only a winning issue, it's also an important issue of basic human rights. People see the injustice and the lack of dignity that people have been subjected to when they don't have access to abortion care in their own community. They're hearing the stories about life-threatening and total unnecessary medical traumas that are the direct results of abortion bans and restrictions. And they're really disgusted with what they're seeing. They're appalled um, that this is what it has come to in our country. And quickly, how do you see this issue playing out among Republican candidates and, and Republican voters? Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be a really tough issue for Republican candidates to thread if they're in support of a total abortion ban, because there's been increased public opinion for abortion, particularly in the last couple of years. Um, and so, you know, a federal ban would mean that in states like Maryland, where I live in practice, that people wouldn't be able to have access to this life-saving care. Doctor, thank you. That's Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley, an OBGYN, CEO of the nonprofit Power to Decide. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Okay, this next story takes us to India, where we're hearing the sounds of a celebration. Priests were blowing conch shells as Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi was leading the consecration of a temple to the Hindu Lord Ram, a temple that some argue has helped change India's very trajectory. A Hindu group built it on the site of a historic mosque raised three decades ago. NPR's Dia Hadid is in Ayodhya, which is where the ceremony is taking place. Hey there, Dia. Hi, Steve. What did you see? Well, Steve, I'm sitting in the media room where journalists have been penned in while the consecration goes on. And we saw Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, climb the stairs to sweeping temple. And as he did, folks in this room broke out in cries of Jai Shri Ram, which means victory to Lord Ram. And the media has been breathlessly covering this event the days leading to it. Kids have the day off, so do many civil servants. It feels and looks like a national celebration. Thousands of pilgrims have flocked here as well to Ayodhya, and they're celebrating too. Have a listen. Can you help us understand the backstory here? We mentioned that this temple was built on the site of what had been a mosque. What makes this a, a matter of some controversy? Right. What makes it a matter of some controversy, Steve, is that this temple was built on the site of a 16th century mosque that was torn down more than 30 years ago by Hindu nationalists who believe it's the birthplace of Lord Ram. And that act triggered communal violence across South Asia, killed thousands, mostly Muslims. But in neighboring Pakistan and Bangladesh, mobs also attacked Hindus. Hmm. And those rioters were whipped up in part by the BJP. That's the party that now rules India, led by the Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And he initiated the temple's building after the Supreme Court handed over the land to Hindu litigants in 2019. And Steve, there's another interesting thing about this huge event. And that is that the construction of this temple is actually not complete. Okay, if it's not complete, why is the Prime Minister leading this giant ceremony that you're describing? Critics say the timing is, is key. They say that Modi has consecrated the temple today with an eye to upcoming elections, probably this spring, where he's expected to win a third successive term. I spoke to Ashutosh Varshney about this. He's the director of the Saxena Centre for Contemporary South Asia at Brown University. And he argues that this is a winning electoral strategy precisely for what this temple has come to represent, which is the primacy of Hindus in India. But this is also a country that is meant to enshrine the equality of all its citizens. 
the fact that the highest office of Indian polity will be leading the consecration essentially means a political declaration in favour of Hindu supremacy. It's really like looking at a tale of two cities here. We spoke to one Ayodhya Muslim community leader and he says he's genuinely happy for Hindus. Lord Ram is deeply revered here, but he says he wants his community to be treated with the same equality. NPR's Dia Hadid is in Ayodhya, India. Dia, thanks for the observations. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. Voters in New Hampshire are gearing up to cast their primary votes tomorrow. Live special coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic and Republican primaries starts at 7 tomorrow on 90.9 WBUR. Get closer to the issues as you get closer to your vote. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how regional banks have been faring since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last March. Upper 30s today under skies that'll grow increasingly overcast around 30 tonight and it'll be cloudy. Upper 30s again tomorrow and mostly cloudy with a slight chance of rain in the late afternoon. It's 22 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, JetBlue and Spirit Airlines say they plan to appeal a ruling from a federal judge that blocks their plan to merge into one airline. JetBlue proposed to buy Spirit last year in an effort to compete with larger airlines. Last week, a federal judge blocked that plan, saying it would raise prices for consumers. JetBlue is the largest carrier at Logan Airport. Putchak plans to open its second Massachusetts location next month. The two-story mini-golf location will open on February 10th in the Natick Mall. Putchak's first Massachusetts location opened in the seaport last year. Lord Hobo Brewing Company is partnering with a beloved North End bakery. The bakery is the brewery is launching a tiramisu stout in partnership with Modern Pastry. Lord Hobo says cannoli and cookie beers were also considered before deciding on tiramisu. It's 8:44. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Students are responding in droves to a new Massachusetts program that covers community college tuition for residents 25 and older. Each of the state's 15 colleges saw increased enrollment last fall. But as WBMR's Carrie Young reports, the enrollment jump is also leading to some growing pains. On a recent Friday afternoon at Mount Wachusett Community College, Fernando Garcia Rodriguez writes welcome in big letters on a chalkboard. The community outreach counselor is about to host a federal financial aid info session. In the past, attendance was pretty low, but these days there are a lot more people stopping by. Definitely very different. It's busier. There's been a lot more adults coming. One reason is a new program called Mass Reconnect. It covers community college tuition for adults 25 and older who don't already have a degree. The state launched the program last fall as part of a larger effort to make higher education more affordable. 
27-year-old Ryan Soulier, a current student at Mount Wachusett, says the extra dollars have been a huge help. It just allowed me to switch to part-time at my job, and uh, that helps me be able to get my homework done more easily and stuff. It's less stressful. Officials at Mount Wachusett Community College say Mass Reconnect is helping to attract a lot of new students, too. Enrollment last semester was up by about 12 percent, or 365 students from the year before. The state's 14 other community colleges have seen increases, too. We didn't expect such a response, but we were delighted. The energy is wonderful. It definitely feels busier. There have been tears, people saying how life-changing this money will be for them. That was David Podell, the president of Mass Bay Community College, Melissa Holster, the financial aid director at Bunker Hill Community College, and Jason Marsala, enrollment director at North Shore Community College. Overall, enrollment in the state community college system increased by 8 percent last year. On the other hand, the state universities saw more stagnant growth. While community college leaders are celebrating the enrollment gains, Jason Marsala of North Shore says financial aid officers and other support staff are struggling with heavier workloads. I want to be 100 percent clear that these are all wonderful programs. But if you're the person who has to make all the adjustments and fix all the accounts and follow all the money, it's made your life super difficult right now. It doesn't help that North Shore Community College has been slowly losing staff for the last few years. A lot of longtime workers left higher education after the pandemic. Nate McKinnon, the executive director of the Massachusetts Association of Community Colleges, says the sudden enrollment jump is stretching some schools' capacity, beginning with registration. We do not have deep benches anywhere, you know, and that's partially because we don't have deep resources. We are strappy operations. Everybody wears multiple hats at every one of our colleges. So when you have big influxes of students, those hats become even heavier. The other issue is keeping track of all of the state's financial aid programs. Mass Reconnect is one of many state programs that cover remaining tuition after federal financial aid and other scholarships kick in. Well, off the top of my head, let's see, Mass Grant, Mass Grant Plus, Mass Grant Plus Expansion now, uh, Mass Reconnect, Mass Nursing, uh, High Demand, ECE, DCF. Heather Ruland, the director of financial aid services at Mount Wachusett Community College, says it's not always clear which funding stream a student is most eligible for, and that makes the financial aid process more time-consuming. Ruland is working with state higher education leaders to simplify the system. I recognize and really empathize with the fact that this is challenging, and they're still having to manage all this with the same staff. Noe Ortega is the commissioner of higher education, and he's leading Mass Reconnect's rollout. He says each college was given $100,000 to help them market the program and deal with administrative backlogs. Still, Ortega says given how popular Mass Reconnect has become, more funding is needed. This is a year of learnings, I would say. I do think that what we need to pay close attention to is what kind of capacity are we going to need to build out because we want to live in this new reality for some time. Ortega says he's lobbying for more funding for community colleges in the next fiscal budget so that when more students do enroll, staff can help support them where it matters most, completing their degree. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a conversation with a scientist and tribal leader about the first ever rollout of a malaria vaccine in Cameroon. It's projected to save thousands of lives. It's 8.50. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. Bus terminals around the country are shutting down, leaving many Americans who rely on the bus with no place to shelter or eat while waiting for a ride. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has suspended his presidential campaign, reshaping the Republican race just days be- a day before the New Hampshire primary. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected a hostage release deal involving the withdrawal of forces from Gaza. And more than 70 people are reported dead across the U.S. due to the ongoing cold and winter storms. Staying up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. Increasingly cloudy today in the upper 30s, overcast and around 30 tonight. Mostly cloudy tomorrow in the upper 30s. There's a slight chance of showers or sleet beginning late in the afternoon. It's 23 degrees in Boston. Boeing's problems just multiplied. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity knows who has the best relationship with the right startup. Affinity.co slash marketplace. And by C3 Generative AI, verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshaw, in for David Brancaccio. Scrutiny of Boeing planes has expanded beyond the 737 MAX 9 after that Alaska Airlines flight where part of the body of the plane blew off during flight. The Federal Aviation Administration has just told airlines to inspect some older models of 737s, too. Marketplace's Nova Safos here with the details. Hi, Nova. Good morning, Sabri. So until now, scrutiny of Boeing was focused on the new MAX 9 model. Now we're talking about planes that have been in the air for a while. What's that mean? Yeah, we're talking about the 737-900ER. ER stands for Extended Range. United, Alaska, and Delta fly these planes, and it was first introduced almost 20 years ago. And needless to say, we have not had a similar incident with these 900ER model planes as we saw with that Alaska Airlines MAX 9 plane on January 5th. And what's come under scrutiny since are the door plugs that seal off unused emergency exits. That's what blew off the Alaska Airlines plane. The FAA put out a bulletin last night saying that older 900ER model planes use an identical door plug design. So they should be inspected as well. Oh boy. So what does this mean in terms of more flight cancellations, disruptions for airlines? Well, at the moment, uh, we're not sure. We're about to find out. Initially, airlines are sending signals that this is not a big issue. Alaska, United, and Delta all say they've already been inspecting 900ER planes. And 
you know, so far so good. Max 9 planes, though, remain grounded, Sabri, and that was initially supposed to be just a matter of days. We're, they're still grounded now. All right, Marketplace in Nova Sappho, thank you so much. You're welcome. Boeing stock, by the way, is down six-tenths percent in pre-market trading. Several mid-sized banks in the U.S. are going to tell us this week how they did in the fourth quarter. Things have not exactly been easy for them ever since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last March. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more on what these banks are up against. Ever since the banking crisis last year, a lot of small and mid-sized banks have been trying to prevent their depositors from pulling out their money by raising interest rates on deposits. It's not uncommon for us to see interest expense that's up 500 to 1,000 percent for an institution year over year. That's David Schiff at the consulting company West Monroe. He says compared to national banks, regional banks are more dependent on their customers' deposits. They're lending out a greater percentage of their deposits. They also don't have some of the diversified sources of income and asset management that the larger institutions have. Last August, the ratings agency Moody's downgraded the credit ratings of 27 regional banks, partly because of how hard it's been for them to raise capital and because of their exposure to the commercial real estate sector. The confluence of those things can kind of interact in a way that it can be greater than just the sum of their parts. That's Jill Satina, Associate Managing Director for U.S. Banks at Moody's. She says banks have tools they can use to respond to these challenges. For instance, pulling back on certain types of lending. That might have been a, a new business segment that they were experimenting with. And they say, I'm, I'm just going to wind it down as a way of trying to focus in on what their core strengths are. Banks might also try to reduce their exposure to riskier commercial real estate loans. Nate Tobik, the founder of Complete Bank Data, says that could mean making smaller loans when they're up for renewal. We gave you a credit line last year of a million dollars. And all we feel comfortable doing for your renewal is 650000 Tobik says the pressures regional banks are facing probably aren't going away anytime soon. He says interest rates on deposits, for instance, are going to keep pressure on banks, even if the Federal Reserve decides to cut rates. It's not going to be back to zero percent rates. And so this is sort of the, the new environment that we need to adapt to. Tobik says that means banks are probably going to stay fairly picky about who they lend to in the near future. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. Star-crossed lovers JetBlue and Spirit Airlines are appealing a decision from a federal judge blocking their merger plan. JetBlue wants to buy Spirit for $3.8 billion, saying it needs the low-cost airline to compete with even larger airlines. The Justice Department sued, saying this would actually make competition worse and raise prices. The federal judge agreed. Spirit Airlines, meanwhile, hasn't been, able, hasn't been profitable for years, and bankruptcy is a real possibility. Spirit Airlines' stock is up 3.3% in pre-market trading. JetBlue's is down two-tenths percent. Let's see how the rest of the market is doing. Let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the three to six-tenths percent range with Dow futures up 98 points. The yield on the 10-year treasury is 4.074 percent. And Macy's is sinking into a potentially nasty battle over who should own it. Two major investors offered $5.8 billion to take the company over. Macy's said no, those investors have threatened to go directly to shareholders to force a possible takeover. For now, they're also considering just offering more money. Macy's stock is up 2.6% in pre-market trading. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. 
and by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden password manager stores unlimited logins, secure notes, credit cards, and more with access on any device. More at bitwarden.com. A month-long fishing ban starts off the French Atlantic coast today. It affects all boats over 26 feet in length, fishing with most kinds of nets. France imposed the ban to protect dolphins. They've been increasingly washing up on French beaches this winter. The BBC's Hugh Schofield reports from Paris. It's the first time since World War II that there's been such an extensive fishing ban in the Bay of Biscay, with some 450 French boats, and many non-French ones too, confined to port or obliged to seek their catch elsewhere. Environmentalist groups that brought the legal action that led to the ban are delighted. They say that the number of dolphins being caught in nets and dying, mainly at this time of year, is increasing dramatically. Around 1,300 dolphins washed up on French beaches last winter, but that, say the groups, is only a fraction of the number that are killed. Fishermen, on the other hand, and others who live from their work are angry. They say that the ban is unnecessary because dolphins in the Bay of Biscay are not endangered and that the promised government compensation is not enough. That was the BBC's Hugh Schofield. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Clear skies to start today, but it'll grow increasingly cloudy as the day goes on. Temperatures will rise to the upper 30s. Tonight they fall to around 30, and it'll be mostly overcast. Skies stay mostly cloudy tomorrow, and it'll be near 40. We'll have a slight chance of rain, sleet, and maybe a little snow after about 4 p.m. It's 23 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.